The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear song, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? So, Cheryl, I want to read you something. Okay. I've been thinking about it. This singularity of meaning, I was my face, I was ugliness, when asked what was wrong with my life. Everything led to it, everything receded from it, my face as personal vanishing point. When I tried to imagine being beautiful, I could only imagine living without the perpetual fear of being alone without the great burden of isolation, which is what feeling ugly felt like. Mm, Lucy Greeley. That is the great Lucy Greeley from her remarkable memoir, Autobiography of a Face. And the reason it just leapt out at me is because we've had a number of letters show up in our inbox, a couple in particular that we're going to talk about today that really are about something utterly elemental, which is... I feel inside my face is ugly, it's unbearable to me, I'm ashamed for feeling this way, but I cannot rid myself of that feeling. Uh, And I think Lucy Greeley, among the many other things she writes about in that memoir, is this conflation of somebody's entire identity within their face and how their face is perceived by the world and, more importantly, by themselves. Right. And we're going to really focus in on the kind of of face that Lucy Greeley really had in life. She died several years ago, but not before she wrote this beautiful memoir and and other um, essays and books about, you know, really her experience as a kid who had cancer in childhood and uh, she had to have several surgeries to her face that really disfigured her. And indeed, uh, the ugliness she speaks of was not imagined. It wasn't the garden variety I wish I had, you know, brown eyes instead of green or whatnot. It was really, um, she did have a face that was at odds with our conventional ideas of beauty or even, uh, you know, averageness. Mm -hmm. I've written, actually, about a friend of mine. I wrote about him in one of my sugar columns called Beauty and the Beast. He Mm -hmm. had been severely burned um, when he was in his 20s. And he did say... I look like a monster. I am ugly. Nobody will love me. How do I find love? And what what I think was the most useful to him in our conversations was not me saying to him, no, 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 you're not ugly. Because the fact is, he did look different. And um, to really just be able to sit with that and talk about that uh, was in so many ways honoring his actual experience rather than trying to pretend it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to do today. I really want to bear witness to the truth that not everybody comes even close to that kind of conventional idea of beauty.
I'll read the first letter. Do it. Dear Sugars, I'm ugly. Not on the inside. On the inside, I'd like to think I'm a supermodel of the guts, brains, and heart variety. But on the outside, I have what they call a face for radio. I'm ashamed to be writing you with such a simple problem when there is real suffering in the world. But Sugars, I've been waiting all my life to stop caring about my looks or for this to hurt less. I thought I would grow out of it. I'm now in my early 30s, and I'm still tormented by the idea of how different my life might be if I'd been dealt better numbers in the genetic lottery. I know there's no guarantee that beauty would change anything, but it sure feels like it would. I'm still hung up on and pained by the unfairness of it, even though much more unfair and painful things happen to people all the time. Very little has worked to dull the pain of walking around with an ugly face. If you couldn't guess, I'm a woman, by the way. I do all the usual grooming things to compensate, but I was born with facial features far from society's ideal. That conventional beauty standards are subjective and destructive doesn't help with the fact that most people think I look like a bridge troll. I don't have body dysmorphia. I'm just at the bottom end of that particular bell curve. While my ideals tell me that shouldn't matter, I've always felt that my unfortunate face makes my life worth less in others' eyes. Do you remember the study that found parents were less likely to buckle in unattractive children in grocery carts? That hit me hard. I don't hate myself. I think I'm smart and witty. I have accomplishments I'm proud of. I work hard to be kind to others. But I'm ugly. I adore my wonderful friends and feel enlivened by my work as an artist. But I'm ugly. I'm amped about the natural world I move through, the books I read, the incredible people I meet. But I'm ugly. I've experienced more significant adversity than this in my life, including growing up in poverty and the early violent death of my father. But this has not automatically allowed me to put my ugly girl sadness into perspective and get over it. None of the usual platitudes, true though they may be, help me much. I'm completely invisible to men. They look right past me. Recently, I went on a trip with friends, and when one of our party, who'd been snapping pictures the whole time, shared them with the group a week later, I realized that out of about 20 shots, I wasn't in a single photo. I'd been there the whole time. He just cropped me out of the frame without even noticing he was doing it. Platitude the second. Looks fade. I accept the consequences of aging, but couldn't I please experience what it's like to be pretty first, even for a little while? Platitude the third. Everyone feels insecure about their looks. I know this is true, but frankly, I have more cause to than most. Sometimes my dog face problem is thrown into particularly sharp relief, such as when I see myself next to my mother, former homecoming queen, and younger sister, recently compared in my presence to Kate Winslet. Or when a well-meaning friend, after a few drinks, let slip that he could understand why I quit acting, which I used to love, because girls who look like me have limited prospects. I don't think either he or my friend who took all the photos meant to be cruel, but I was gutted. And then, of course, there's this. No man I've dated has ever called me beautiful, ever. They might say I'm cute or sexy, or they say they love me, but they never say I'm beautiful, and I don't think they ever will. I feel such despair at the idea that I'll live my whole life and no one will ever call me beautiful. I know I'm wasting my energy dwelling on something I can't change, and I'd like to be better than the superficial, self-obsessed, self-pitying jerk I feel like I am writing this letter. 
God, how I wish I could just get over myself and be the self-assured, fire-breathing, feminist, smarty-pants I want to be. But how? How do I do it? How do I accept the face fate dealt me and move on with my life? Signed, hideously unhappy. Mm. This was a tough letter. Um, I want to read a little bit more Lucy Greeley, because I think one of the things that we're going to see in, in all these letters that come into our inbox is, this is not something that I really should be worrying about. There's, there's self-loathing that, you know, sort of precedes even the possibility of thinking about it. And Lucy Greeley just lasers right in on this. She writes, I treated despair in terms of hierarchy. If there was a more important pain in the world, it meant my own was negated. I thought I simply had to accept the fact that I was ugly and that to feel despair about it was simply wrong. And that's part of the problem. It's a form of despair uh, and longing and, and doubt and negativity that you can't acknowledge without feeling that you're betraying your feminist smarty pants self or somehow um, being solipsistic and self-absorbed. What I would point out to you, hideously unhappy, is that there are a couple of things that are worth thinking about. The, the first is that you had a really tough and unhappy childhood, it sounds like, with poverty and then the early and violent death of your father, and then compounding that. And this is something I can relate to in my own small way. You had a mom who was objectively, it sounds like, judged by the world to be beautiful, and a sister who also is, you know, compared to Kate Winslet. And as somebody who has two brothers who were always, like, just recognized as extremely attractive, that does really shape how you think of yourself when that's your measuring stick. And I just, it's worth asking the questions, to what extent do those experiences magnify um, the, the, the feeling you have of, I am never going to be worthy of being called beautiful, I'm never going to be able to internalize any feeling about my looks and my face in particular, aside from I'm unworthy, I'm ugly, I'll never be noticed, I'm going to be the one cropped out of the photos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think hideously unhappy. What Steve says about this, um, the dual nature of the way you feel bad. You feel bad because you feel ugly, and you feel bad because you feel bad about feeling ugly, Right. which is really... Painful. That's that's what leads to despair. I think when you when you you can't even own the uh, feeling you have about your dissatisfaction with the way you look, and that's that's one area that I do feel like I can be very specifically, you know, implore you to unburden yourself of that. Right. Uh, most of us spend a whole lot of time thinking about that literal face we show to the world. Okay, this is why the beauty industry, I mean, cosmetics and plastic surgery and, you know, plucking the eyebrow. I mean, all of the it's, things we yeah, do jewelry, to yeah, our faces, right. even people who aren't like really obsessed with beauty. And so, you know, please don't feel bad about that. It does not make you a shallow person. It doesn't make you a person who values what's on the outside more than you value what's on the inside. It just means that you're up against something you know, you have a face that doesn't really meet the standards of the culture we happen to live in at this moment in time. And that is a hard thing. And I just want to say to you, I hear that. And I don't think you're wrong for thinking it's hard. There's an amazing moment from 
the right at the end of Nora Ephron's wonderful essay about her breasts shaping up. I think it's called a few words about breasts. And her friends are trying to say, "Oh, it's okay. You know, really having big boobs is no fun either." And really, it's a uh, you know, you were lucky in some ways. And the last paragraph of this essay is so striking. She writes, "I've thought about my friends' remarks. I've tried to put myself in their place. I've considered their point of view. I think." They are full of shit. And it's this daring moment where, where Nora Ephron's trying to say, there are some things that are your stuff, and you never get past it. You just learn to manage it. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. So we're continuing our discussion of the letter from Hideously Unhappy, who says she's ugly and uh, is having a hard time really coming to terms with that and feels even bad about herself for feeling bad about her face. We actually have somebody in our studio, which is always very exciting. Oftentimes we have to talk to people on the phone, but we're super lucky to have Ariel Henley with us this afternoon. She's a writer and activist for individuals living with facial differences, and she's written for outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Rumpus, and narratively, and now she is at work on a memoir. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Well, why don't you tell us about you? Yeah. We're listening, obviously, on a podcast. People mm-hmm. can't see you, and you've written about your own facial differences. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So uh, I was born with Cruzon syndrome, which is a craniofacial condition where the bones in the head fuse prematurely. So Right when I was born, I looked like a normal, healthy baby. And then my eyes started bulging and the shape of my head um, got a little lopsided and things like that. So I had uh, dozens of surgeries to correct my appearance. 
Um, so I'm used to standing out um, from the time I was a child. You know, I'd walk down the street or I'd be, my parents would be pushing uh, my sister and I in a stroller. And even grown adults would stop and they'd comment. Um, so, I mean, What from, would they say? Look at her eyes. Oh, what's wrong with her face? Um, I got called ugly for, like, that was very much a word that was thrown at me from, I don't know, as young as I can remember, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but for a long time, I mean, probably just being a resilient child, I guess, um, it didn't register. Um, I was like, what are they talking about? Like, who are they looking at? You know, because I was just me. I just kind of did my thing. Um, And then as I grew up and I went to school, kids would say things and then, have surgery, come back to school, jump right in like nothing happened, and then go to middle school with all new kids. And it definitely became more of an issue there because I didn't know my story or what had happened. And we had, I had bigger surgeries at that time anyway that changed my appearance more then. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I was a senior in high school, I actually flew to Paris um, to have a surgery that was supposed to straighten my eyes and move them closer together. There was like a 50% chance or something uh, super high like that of like brain damage, blindness, or death. And I was like, I don't care. It'll make me beautiful. Because in my mind, to be beautiful meant to be happy. So uh, we got to Paris. There was uh, a surgery scheduled. Like it, it was, it was happening. We talked to the surgeon, and it was like, uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't want to be here. I, I don't know what I was thinking, really, to be willing to go through that much pain and to potentially die right. because I hated myself that much. Um, my mom got us a plane uh, flight home, and we went back. I wish I could say, and then we lived happily ever after. Obviously, no. Um, I went to school 3,000 miles away in Vermont um, because it was far away from every mm. reminder that I'd had of surgery and all this painful medical stuff. And You had grown up where? Um, in California, okay. Northern California. So I had applied for colleges and some in California and some uh, on the East Coast, and I decided— Right now, I want to go away. I want to start over. Um, and it took taking classes and being intellectually challenged and meeting all kinds of people from different backgrounds, and everyone had a unique story. And suddenly I was a part of you know, a campus with, I don't know, values that aligned with my own. And it was hard. I don't really, it took a long time, but I just kept trying, you know, even when I had days and months where it's like, I just was really depressed and I just didn't want to meet anyone and um, struggled to make friends. I just kept trying, mm-hmm. keep going. Um, but to be honest, it got exhausting. It got really, really exhausting to be so focused on just yeah. what I looked like because yeah. there's so much more to life than that. Um, and that's really why I started, you know, writing and getting involved in 
uh, like activism and that kind of thing because I wanted to use my story and my experiences to tell other people like, no, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not the end of the world. My eyes are still far apart. They're still crooked. I still get stared at sometimes, but it's okay. Yeah. So what's it been like when you started to, you know, get into the world of dating and that kind of courtship romance stuff? Because mm-hmm. to speak to hideously unhappy's anxieties and anguish when the idea of not fitting some ideal physically in your face or whatever, elsewhere somehow gets attached to the idea of I'm going to be alone. Mm-hmm. I did try like online dating and Tinder and, you know, Whatever. Uh, But yeah, I always post pictures and I get um, emails too from people who are like, hey, what's wrong with your eyes? And I'm just like, really? And then of course it turned into, want to get dinner? No, not now. Like you're just, you just insulted me. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I actually, uh, I met my boyfriend online and I messaged him. He responded and it was never an issue. He not like, didn't ask me a single time, why do you look the way that you do? That was never, it wasn't an issue. Well, let's talk about, I want to read our second letter. And Ariel, I'm so interested to hear what you make of this one. Here we go. Dear Sugars, I'm a 25-year-old female who has, by many accounts, lived an extremely privileged and exciting life. I obtained an international law degree last year, and I've lived and worked all over the world. My life has been full of so much beauty and so many rich experiences. I'm a human rights practitioner whose self-worth is based on moral principles and intellect far more than physical appearances. That said, I am still a young female who lives in a very superficial world, and I am by no means above it all. I used to love getting dressed up, going out with my friends to clubs and bars, flirting with men from all walks of life. I used to have a boyfriend for every day of the week, in every corner of the world. About two years ago, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that involves the disruption of my hormones. Every month for just over two years now, I experience severe hives, dizziness, and a fever with my monthly cycle. While this has caused great disruption in my life, both personally and professionally, this has not been the main cause of my depression. With this hormone imbalance has come the horrible discoloration of my face, often termed melasma. What used to be a thick, dark patch on my forehead has now also spread into a mustache and blotchy cheeks. I've tried every treatment imaginable. I took birth control pills, which my doctor assured me would help. They did not. I tried steroids. I spent every last penny on laser treatments, bleach creams. I turned my kitchen into a witch's den, brewing carotene, vitamin E blends, scrubbing my face with apple cider vinegar. I stopped eating gluten and dairy, drowned my body with turmeric. I tried to will it away through prayer and meditation. I stood upside down for hours, held power poses until my knees collapsed. I visited a shaman in a Nicaraguan jungle, a naturopath in Copenhagen. It has all been to no avail and my skin is beginning to look like a life sentence. I no longer date. I haven't had a boyfriend for even one day a week in over a year. When I do get dressed up and go out, I feel paranoid that everyone who looks at me is wondering, what's wrong with my face? This disease has cost me a type of self-confidence that I never before even realized I had. I have extremely supportive friends who constantly tell me I am beautiful and try to make me feel good about myself. 
Still, I often find myself getting sucked into a dark path of negativity where I try to grasp the fact that I may never feel pretty again or that romantically this life may be spent alone. I would love so much to one day find a partner to share my wonderful adventures with, but I can't imagine dating. I can't even make eye contact with the type of men I used to casually flirt with on idle evenings out. Along with my ugly skin, this disease has brought out an even uglier side of me. When my skin first started to discolor, I starved myself, because if I had to be ugly, I couldn't fathom being fat, too. Isn't that disgusting? I constantly feel myself being pulled back into self-hatred and vanity. Perhaps most of all, I hate the sappy victim this disease has turned me into. I feel incredibly guilty that I have allowed my amazing life to be disrupted by something so superficial. When I'm breaking out in hives or having a dizzy spell, I give myself room to grieve, for this can often be a painful experience that leaves me feeling powerless and frustrated. But I have not been able to figure out how to comfort myself through this superficial aspect of it. How do I grieve that I no longer feel pretty without being a complete narcissist? Where a powerful, fearless woman once stood sits a small and insecure little girl. I worry that this will take a toll on my work. I delve into dark issues in my job, and it's important that the fearless woman shows up to tackle these issues and not the insecure little girl. How can I maneuver my way through the world without any confidence in my physical appearance? How do I come to terms with the fact that I may never feel pretty again? Please, sugars, how do I love myself through this? Yours truly, The Ugly Duckling. Wow, such sorrow in this uh, letter. And I think here again we see this woman continually saying, this is superficial, I shouldn't feel this way, but I do. And again, I want to say that it's actually very understandable, I think, Ugly Duckling. It's very understandable that you have, you know, anxiety and, and grief about this new condition that you're dealing with that's manifesting itself right there on your face. And it's the the thing you see when you look in the mirror. It's the thing other people see when they see you. And there's been a dramatic shift. Um, it's it's okay to feel that. It's okay to be having trouble uh, adjusting to this new way of being in the world. Yeah. I wonder, Ariel, did you feel at any point in your journey a certain kind of rage or a certain sense of just the injustice of it. Because I feel like underneath the sub, sort of subtext of this letter in some ways is, I should be more evolved than this, but I just am furious. I've lost something that I used to have. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially living in a society where, especially for women, our worth is in our physical appearance. And so to have something affect your face, especially, it's understandable to be mad. I mean, I spent many years angry, like really, really angry. Um, I can remember being five years old and seven years old and crying to my mom, like, no, take it off. I don't want this. This isn't me. That's not mine. I want my old face back. Um, And even going into middle school, too, just, again, having surgery where you wake up and you look very different and I was awful. I was so mean to everyone around me because it hurts. It hurts so much to be that angry. And here, 
ugliness is unhappiness. Yeah, that's it. You mean here in these letters? Yeah, in these yep. letters, ugliness is unhappiness. But, okay, let's back up, though. Mm-hmm. You are obviously pretty evolved on this. You've, you've, you've confronted this in your life, and maybe mm-hmm. in part because you did have, you know, from a very early age, you were having these surgeries. But can you help us come up with some ideas um, with how she might get to that place you're at now? Mm-hmm. How does she come to terms with her, really what amounts to uh, this profound sense of disappointment mm-hmm. that she feels that, that this is her face. This is the face she has to live with. Right. I would honestly say, and this is what I did when I was in, I think it was like seventh grade or something, take a picture of yourself every day hmm. and look at it for a few minutes. Just look at it. And instead of focusing on, oh gosh, like I have a double chin or I have wrinkled, whatever, Focus on the things that you like about yourself. Try and flip the narrative. You know when you listen to a song for the first time and you're like, eh, it's okay. And then a week later, it's like your favorite song because you've listened to it so many times and it grows on you. It's kind of like that where the longer you look at something, the more beautiful it becomes and the easier it is to accept. And then as time goes by, you'll start to hopefully feel more connected to those images and feel more connected to yourself. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think with both letters, but I'm going to speak specifically to Ugly Duckling is, you know, you you do say in your letter that you feel ugly or that, you know, will you ever feel pretty again? This isn't a state of being, uh, you know, it's it's actually a state of of a feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to pick up and flirt with guys if you won't make eye contact with them. Right. You know, the former you felt confident enough to do that. The new you uh, feels paranoid and uh, sad and weak and insecure. And all of those things are readable on our faces and in our postures. And I don't mean to falsely kind of, you know, deliver this kind of platitude. Like, you just have to feel pretty to be pretty. Um, And yet, there is some truth to this, you know, that I, I, I feel like Ugly Duckling, the, the, the process you need to go through is, you know, really grieving uh, this this former life of yours where you didn't have this autoimmune disease. Like that's, you, you're, you have every right, as Ariel said, to be angry, to, to say, I want, I want the old thing back. But eventually when you uh, go deep into those feelings, what rises from that rage is the truth that you can't go back. And this applies to hideously unhappy too. You know that that you you have that we we all have the faces we have, and it's up to us to figure out how to inhabit them, right? And you can do it one one way that is feeling terrible about yourself and putting that kind of energy out into the world, or you can do it another way. So you know, I do think that that a lot of this is about making hard but conscious decisions about not the way you're going to look, but the person you're going to be inside your body and inside that face. Ariel, can you talk about that? Like, what what do you think being born with these faces that you've had over time, what do you think that they have given you or contributed to your life? Yeah, it's definitely allowed me to not only connect with myself, but to connect with other people on a deeper level because it automatically weeds people out. Right. There are people who want nothing to do with me because of what I look like. And that's totally fine. Door's right there. Right. Go ahead. Keep walking, you know. Um, because the people that are in my life are there because they want to be. It's not because they're going to 
get free drinks at the bar when we go out because I'm just so gorgeous. Like that's probably not going to ever happen. And I'm okay with that. Um, It allows people to be more vulnerable with you. Um, All of my friendships, it's like, we can sit there and we can just like pour our hearts and souls out and, you know, over a glass of wine and, and they trust me because I get it. Like, I understand what it's like to be on the outside. I do. I always have. Mm-hmm. And now I think that you're learning that. Um, and so it can help you to be kinder, too. When you see someone else struggling, it can force you to come to terms with your story and the fact that everyone else has a story, too. It's interesting what you said, especially, I hope you were listening, Ugly Duckling, what Ariel's suggesting is, there's a sad irony here. You, you really are probably going to be better at advocating for people who are in one way or another marginalized because you've had the extraordinarily unfortunate privilege of uh, you know, being cast out from the world of the beautiful who sail through life in their sort of you know, a bubble of desirability, getting free drinks at the bar and picking up whoever they like. And you know, I'm not faulting anybody who you know, was won that particular genetic lottery, but I don't think that's where most people live. I think if you really gave everybody truth serum, they would probably speak a lot more about the ways in which they feel ugly and undesirable than the ways in which they feel desirable and on top of the world. Um, And there are a couple other um, books I would read, you know, just so you know that you're on a journey that lots of other people are. For sure, Ariel's memoir, when that comes out, we'll both be at the front of the line for that. But Truth and Beauty, Ann Patchett, our friend Ann Patchett's beautiful book, which is about her friendship with Lucy Greeley and does talk a lot about Lucy's struggle from without. I think about the work of our friend Stephen Elliott. He writes about being an outsider, feeling like a physically undesirable Mm -hmm. person. Even Cyrano, the great tragedy of Cyrano de Bergerac as a play is that it's a guy who is so attached to the feeling that he's unattractive that even when his love, his lifelong love, Roxanne, knows that he's the one who authored all those beautiful letters to her and who won her heart, and he never admits it. He goes to his grave feeling ugly. It's a kind of uh, dark lesson in what will happen if you don't find a way to recognize that this experience is a teacher. Mm-hmm. All right, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank we you. appreciate your stories and your insight. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Argo Studios in New York City with Paul Ruest. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogeson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars, and please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. 
And if you want to read the column every week, we answer uh, an additional letter on the topic that we've discussed on the podcast. You can find that at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. That's on Tuesdays and on Thursdays in the style section.